Welcome to the Christian Atheists, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 86, C.S. Lewis's Historicism, or Back to the Seeing Eye. This week, I am going to allow our No Compromise to explain the content of this essay and take the opportunity to bring these four essays together, The Seeing Eye, The Poison of Subjectivism, The Funeral of a Great Myth, and Historicism. The first thing to say is that Lewis pronounced the funeral of the wrong myth. Historicism, quote, The belief that men can, by the use of their natural powers, discover an inner meaning in the historical process, End quote, is the myth that has truly died, or is at least on life support in our postmodern world, even if it still sometimes, in an attenuated form, haunts us. Even this, of course, requires qualification. Quote, Evolutionism, when it ceases to be simply a theorem in biology and becomes a principle for interpreting the total historical process, is a form of historicism. End quote, tying this essay in to last week's. Although the exemplary historicist is our friend, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, and his Philosophy of History, a classic historicist text, it is the logical contradictions in the practical outplay of the Hegelian dialectic that have resulted in historicism falling out of favor. For Hegel, all of history is the development of reason. Hegel's dialectic, his process metaphysics, his collapse of being into reason, just is history. Reason is spirit, is dialectic, is history. For Marx, matter, understood as the conditions of economic value, is dialectic, is history. For both philosophers, there was a central value, an objective, unitary, highest good that gave order and structure to the value hierarchy. But the death of God, their denial of transcendence, progressively undermined, as Nietzsche clearly saw, any notion of a single unifying good. And the dialectic has fractured into tribal units. This is what we called Hegelian relativism in our series on Hegel. It was Jean-Francois Lyotard who said, quote, I define postmodern as incredulity towards metanarratives, end quote. In a very clear sense, you must believe in metanarratives in order to be a historicist. And Hegel's spirit, his dialectically developmental metaphysics, as rationality itself, is a supreme meta-narrative, as is Marx's dialectical materialism. Both Hegel and Marx, then, relied on God's corpse, the dead central value of the Western world, to maintain themselves. It is probably worth mentioning that theism, and more particularly Christianity, is a meta-narrative too. But not all meta-narratives are historicist. Lewis offers a further clarification. Quote, we must guard against the emotional overtones of a phrase like 
the judgment of history. It might lure us into the vulgarest of all vulgar errors, that of idolizing as the goddess history, what manlier ages belabored as the strumpet fortune. That would sink us below the Christian, or even the best pagan, level. The very Vikings and Stoics knew better. End quote. Historicism, that is, has something of the religious about it, something that looks beyond the contingencies which are the subject matter of the historian, to the dignity of the divine, of reason, purpose, and meaning, all of which is antithetical to the denial of transcendence, the death of God embraced by Hegel and Marx. That Christianity, too, does this should not be surprising. Quote, that history, in a certain sense, must be all this for a Christian, I do not deny, says Lewis. In the modern world, quite plainly, historicism has a pantheistic ancestor and a materialistic progeny in the Marxists. Quote, for the Greeks, we are told, history was a mere flux, or at best, cyclic. Significance was to be sought not in becoming, but in being. For Christianity, on the other hand, history is a story with a well-defined plot, pivoted on creation, fall, redemption, and judgment. It is indeed the divine revelation par excellence, the revelation which includes all other revelations. Quote, what appears on Christian premises to be true in the historicist's position is this. Since all things happen either by the divine will, or at least by the divine permission, it follows that the total content of time must in its own nature be a revelation of God's wisdom, justice, and mercy. History is, in that sense, a perpetual evangel, a story written by the finger of God. End quote. The issue, though, is this. A true, rather than the self-deceptive denial of transcendence practiced by Hegel, Marx, and their immediate progeny, makes the historicist position impossible. Quoting Lewis again, if by one miracle the total content of time were spread out before me, and if by another I were able to hold all that infinity of events in my mind, and, if by a third, God were pleased to comment on it so that I could understand it, then, to be sure, I could do what the historicist says he is doing. End quote. Historicism, that is, is Gnosticism, an arrogated claim to knowledge beyond the human. As we have emphasized, Human beings are limited, Socratically ignorant beings, and historicism requires the unlimited and all-knowing mind of God. Historicism, that is, is only possible from God's seat, as we have emphasized repeatedly. God can claim that perspective. Human beings cannot. Summing the point, Lewis says this, I do not dispute that history is a story written by the finger of God, but have we the text? The answer, of course, is no. Quote, the philosophy of history is a discipline for which we mortal men lack the necessary data. End quote. 
even divine revelation in Scripture, is insufficient, as God reveals only that which we need to know, never the impossible whole picture. In other words, Hegel's philosophy of imminence will only allow historicism to flourish until the odor of transcendence from God's corpse passes from social consciousness, as it has progressively over the last two centuries. It was in postmodernism that the anti-historicist logic rose most strongly to the fore, maintaining all the while a commitment to the evolutionary myth of its Hegelian and Marxist foundations. The myth of evolution is not dead. It flourishes in our consumer culture. The new is always the better. What is coming to be, both politically and culturally, and in pop culture, is always superior to what is, and, more importantly, to what has been. This is the retrospective contempt of Hegelianism. This is dialectical reasoning poisoning our rational engagement with reality and evidence. This is Marx's famous dictum, all that exists deserves to perish, to usher in the utopia to come. This is the idea that traditional morality is retrogressive, passé, an embarrassing residue of our benighted past which must be overcome, denied, hidden, destroyed. An attitude incompatible with historicism, which must at least take history seriously, objectively, as something to be respected as true. Today, by contrast, history, not to mention truth itself, is that which must be denied, must be rewritten to serve the ends of those wielding power, as in Orwell's 1984, the 1619 Project, or in First Lady Michelle Obama's words, quote, Barack knows that we are going to have to make sacrifices. We are going to have to change our conversation. We are going to have to change our traditions our history. We're going to have to move into a different place as a nation." End quote. Notice here the religious flavor in the term sacrifice, the retrospective contempt in the whole statement, the demand for a progressive march forward at all costs. This is Marx. This is Hegel's denial of transcendence. This is the zeitgeist of our contemporary world. The fact that so few recognize here the embrace of subjectivism in the place of the Western objectivity that has anchored science and technological success in addressing humanity's problems displays graphically how pervasive and infectious the pathogen has become. We have used the term progressive throughout, advisedly, in two distinct senses. None of the Hegelian changes to Western thinking and culture were precipitous. There is, as the term evolution has come to suggest, a nearly infinite gradualism, a step-by-step takedown of the Western vision, a slippery slope which just is the, quote, long march through the institutions, 
of Antonio Gramsci. Secondly, progressivism stands in for the myth of evolution, as Lewis describes it, and as we have detailed in The Ugly Hegel. For the myth, history is progress. And here we find the haunting of historicism I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast. Since progress, evolution, is the natural order of things, the old must fall away in favor of the new, the better. History, as objectively true, must yield to history as subjective means to the progressive end. Thesis must yield to antithesis. It is no mistake that progressivism is the term adopted. It has all the slipperiness and ambiguity cherished in the dialectical reasoning process and in the woke language wars so prevalent today. All the rhetorical power needed to silence all opposition as retrograde, primitive, anachronistic, obsolete. Who will stand in the way of progress? Forgetting, of course, that a subjective desire for change, which is what they are really referring to as progress, is at least as likely, as Lewis reminded us last week, to destroy what is good, what has stood the test of time, as to enhance it. Thus, the death of transcendence is the death of objectivity, of truth itself. This is the poison of subjectivism. It, too, is progressive. We've noted the conservatism of Hegel, the deference to objective reality that characterized his philosophy of right. As transcendent objectivity dies, though, subjectivism progressively ascends. And, as famously said by Jacques Derrida, any center, value, truth, reality itself, ceases to hold. Our world fragments into fiefdoms, tribes, each holding to its own center. And since all objective values have died, all that remains to mediate between competing factions is the raw exercise of power, as Michel Foucault instructs us. This is the world that Hegel's spirit has bequeathed us, has built for us. This is the logical progression of the dialectic. Having retraced our steps this year on the Christian Atheist, from historicism back to the funeral of a great myth, and thence to the poison of subjectivism, we find ourselves again at our origin point in the seeing eye. Hopefully, all this retrospection, this exploration, will allow us to, quote, arrive where we started, but to, quote, know the place for the first time. For the point of origin of all this is the denial of transcendence itself. The great inversion, the turning away, the refusal to see the evident pointing beyond imminence, the determination to explain away all that does so to be skeptical of only that which we refuse to see. This is the progressive Hegelian inversion of reality, and as we said before, a dramatic picture of Plato's theory of education exemplified in the analogy of the cave. Education, 
Plato tells us, takes for granted that we can see, but that we must point our vision in the proper direction if we want to understand, if we are truly seeking knowledge. How? By turning the soul from that which is less real towards that which is more real. A great deal, indeed, depends upon the eye that sees and on where it chooses to look. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.